what a, what a song. Can you all say amen to that? And uh, I'm getting just a little echo here in these monitors. If you all can take that out, uh, that would be great. John chapter 1, if you are uh, tracking along with us in this series, How the Word Became Flesh and uh, How He Has Dwelt Among Us, we are so uh, thankful uh, for God's Word. And there are all sorts of narratives that we can uh, look at uh, in uh, Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel, and we can see about uh, the Lord and his birth. We could look at Old Testament passages uh, like Isaiah. But the Lord this year directed us to John chapter 1 to take us very back to the beginning, to this pre-incarnate Christ, so that we could see who he is, that we might worship him and lift him up and exalt him, and that also we would uh, celebrate his incarnation, not only what he was like before he became flesh and dwelt among us, but that we could even celebrate so much more the very fact that God revealed himself in human form through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And so today I want us to read verses 6 through 13. You know, in verses 1 and 2, we talked about how Jesus is the beginning of all things. And then last week, we looked at uh, verses 3 down through 5, and we talked about how Jesus is the revealed glory to God, the revealed glory of God. If you want to know what the glory of God looks like, we have a far better image than the Shekinah glory of God that we see in the Old Testament. We have a um, better, better image than anything that we see uh, in the law or the sacrificial system. We have the glory of the Lord revealed through Jesus Christ himself. And so this week we want to continue in that theme and we want to look at Jesus and how he is the light of the world. Jesus and how he is the light of the world. Verse 6 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but who were born of God. Isn't it a tremendous thought that Jesus is the light of the world and he has come. He has revealed himself. He has revealed the glory of the Lord to us. He has revealed our heavenly father to us and that in Christ we can have salvation. And that salvation is full and free. What does that word salvation means? It means that we can be forgiven from our sins. We can be saved from our sins. We can be saved from a restless life that is at enmity with God. That means that is frustrated and that is at war with God. If you're here this morning and you, you just feel like your soul is constantly warring with God and there's just bent up frustration in you, I want to encourage you today and let you know that Christ uh, has come that you might be saved from your sin, and in being saved from your sin, you might know that peace uh, of God, that you would have peace with him, and this frustration, this enmity, this warfare that exists between you as a lost person versus you as a saved person in the Lord, 
that, that that frustration can be removed through the person of Christ. And we no longer have to be viewed as someone who has this strife going on, this warfare going on with God. But we can be children of God, and we can know him, and we can love him, and we can serve him. And what a tremendous blessing and joy it is. Whenever you come face to face with the word of God, um, when you see Jesus high and lifted up, there are two things that occur. Uh, One, there should be a self-humiliation that comes over us. When we see God as he is, we cannot help but see ourselves as we are. Would you all agree with that this morning? Not at me like this. So when we see ourselves as we are, we are to respond appropriately, and we are to ask, what are we to do in response to God revealing himself? Isaiah uh, experienced that in the Old Testament when he saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, right? And the Lord came to him. And the cherubims are crying out and singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah uh, asked the Lord, uh, right? The Lord says, Who shall go for me? Who shall go and tell the world uh, about my good news, my glorious good news? And you see Isaiah the prophet respond by saying, Here am I, do what? Here am I, send me. What is going on there? God reveals himself to his prophet, right? His prophet sees the Lord high and exalted and lifted up, and it begs a response. It begs a response on the part of Isaiah. And so Isaiah says, man, I am a man of unclean lips, right? I I don't deserve this. And the Lord just takes all of that excuse away, and he conforms Isaiah's heart to be able to say, here am I, send me. It's that picture of self-humiliation. It's that picture of proper response when we see the Lord high and lifted up. I would say to you today, you see that in verses 6 through 13. And so I'm going to give it to you in the beginning just for the sake of time. I I always run myself short on the back end of messages. And so uh, I want to make sure I give this to you. What is our response in this passage when we read verses 6 through 13? And we see so clearly and evidently that Jesus is this light. It's just almost in every verse that you see this word light where you see how Jesus has come and the people's response to him. And I would say to you today that if we rightly divide the word of God according to the Holy Spirit, there are four things that you see that we should respond appropriately with as we understand that Jesus is the light. Number one is we should witness about the light. We should witness about the light. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Number two, we should adore the beauty of the light. So we should witness to the light. We should adore the beauty, the attraction of the light. And here's the third thing. We should pray for those who resist the light. We should pray for those who resist the light. You're, you're going to see that just real clearly as we walk through this text. In verse 10 and 11, he's, there's this great light he's coming. There's just some folks who resist that light. And our response is that we should pray for people who are resisting the light. And then lastly, we should celebrate the fact that many will receive the light. That they have received the light and many will receive the light. 
And so think with me for just a few minutes in verses 6 through 8 how we should witness about the light. The scripture says there was this man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. In my Bible that I uh, carried for so long, my worn Bible, this is a new Bible, I have that phrase underlined in my Bible. He was not the light. And I've got that underlined to remind me. I'm not the light. I'm just to point people to the light. We're to bear witness about that light. We see in verse 6, this messenger, John the Baptist, there's this man who's sent from the Lord whose name is John. He's a cousin of Jesus. When you read Luke's narrative, you get the full story, right, about that. You see how John is this forerunner of Jesus, how his mother Elizabeth gives birth to him, about how God had set him apart to be this forerunner, the one who was going to come and uh, preach a message of repentance and prepare the way of the Lord. He was, to, he was this bridge between the silence of the past 400 years and God not speaking as a judgment upon Israel. Now he sends this one, uh, this prophet of God, as this forerunner who bridges the gap to Jesus who's going to be coming as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And John is sent with this wonderful message to prepare the way of the Lord. He is going to call people to repentance and he's going to let them know how salvation can truly be found in the person of Christ. There's something about John that always captures our attention. We always get caught up with John's appearance. If you're familiar with the narrative of John in, in other Gospels, you know it talks about his dress and his long hair and his diet, what he ate, right? Honey and locusts and wild honey and locusts. And it, it was just when you get this picture of John, you scratch your head sometimes if you're not familiar with Scripture, and you think to yourself, why is the, the Gospel writer, why is he giving us all this information about John? And I really want to put that to rest for you today or if it's a question for you because I don't want you to miss why they go into a description of who John is even though John doesn't, uh, John the gospel writer doesn't bring it up much about John the Baptist. We all tend to think about, man, he, he was robed in camel hair and he had long hair and, and he ate this crazy diet. Why was that? Because John the Baptist is one of three lifelong Nazarites that we see in all of Scripture. And you see more than that, but only three who was a Nazarite from the time that they were born until the time that they died. Uh, the first is the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament. Another is Samson, right? You find him in the book of Judges. And then you get to John the Baptist. And what's so important about the reason the Holy Spirit allows us to understand this about John the Baptist is this, because he wants to remind us by that description, what that Nazarite vow was and where John's affections lie if he's going to be called the witness to the light. And so what did that mean to be a Nazarite? What, what did you have to do to be a Nazarite? There were three things. A Nazarite could not touch a dead body. Even the body of a relative, a close relative of theirs, they could not touch a dead body. That was to demonstrate that their affections were solely on the altar of the Lord. That they had no higher affection than their affection and their love for the Lord. They did not embrace the dead. A Nazarite could not cut their hair, demonstrating that their appearance 
was on the altar of the Lord. That they were not wrapped up in outward appearance, but they were concerned with the condition of their heart, right? This is the Nazarite vow that's allowing John to be this forerunner, right? It's speaking of his walk with the Lord, his commitment to Christ, his commitment to the Lord. And then this Nazarite had to abstain from the fruit of the vine, demonstrating that his appetite was on the Lord. It was on the altar of the Lord. And so whether it would be the things that he consumed or the way that he looked or the things that he desired, a Nazarite had to be sold out to Christ. And that's what you see in John the Baptist. So the next time you're reading that account and it goes through all that description, you need to just think about this description helps us to understand that John was sold out to the Lord in every conceivable way. He was a messenger of the Lord. All of these restrictions were just simply to remind John and his audience that God had called him to be a witness. This was his motive of being the forerunner of Jesus. He came as a witness, verse 7 says, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. This word witness is a word uh, that in the Greek is martis. It's a title in which all of us Christians bear. We see this same word in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when the Holy Spirit says you receive a power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus says this of the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You shall be my witnesses. You shall be my martyrs. It's where we get a word martyr from, meaning that we will witness for Christ even unto death. That's what it's referring to. So you see this messenger, who is it, John the Baptist. You see why he has come, because the Bible says he came as this witness to bear witness about Jesus, and the reason being that all might believe through him. And then notice something very important here. He was not the light, verse 8 says, but he came to bear witness about the light. John's gospel uh, was, his message was Christ-centered. It pointed people to Jesus. He knew he was not the light, and his God-given task was to get people to Jesus. My brothers and sisters, there's not anything more important that we could do as a people here then recommit ourselves to being faithful witnesses unto the Lord during this time of season as we head into the new year. There are going to be people that you meet over the next two weeks who are wounded, and Christmas is not a time of celebration from them. It's a time of stress for them. It's a time of meeting with people and going through a lot of uh, maybe uh, some pretense on their behalf or on someone else's behalf. It's not going to be a time of of celebration and jubilee. And I want to really encourage you. You will have unprecedented opportunities to witness about this wonderful light of Christ. This idea of being a witness is nothing more than realizing, wait a minute, I don't have power to, to change anyone. I can't forgive anyone of their sins. I can't change their life. I can't change the decisions that they make. All we can do is point to the one who can change their life, whose name is Jesus. And so that's what we want to do. We want to be witnesses about this light. John serves as this wonderful model, if you will, and he's a reminder to all of us 
that the very reason we are alive today is to share the gospel with others. My brothers and sisters, we do not exist for ourselves, for our families, uh, for our communities. We exist for the glory of God. And if we really love ourselves, our families, and our communities, we're going to get them to the most treasured thing that we can possibly possess, which is not a tangible things at all. It's not our knowledge, but what it is is the wonderful gospel message that Jesus can change your life if you put your faith and trust in him and turn from your sin. Jesus will receive you. He will change you from the inside out, and you will never, ever be the same. You say, preacher, I feel pressured sometimes when I hear about the Great Commission, when I hear verses like Acts 1.8, and when I hear about John being this great preacher and going out and, and preaching a message of repentance as he's preparing the way of the Lord, I just don't feel like I'm gifted in that way. And I just want to say to you, my brothers and sisters, evangelism is not a spiritual gift. It's a call to obey. Telling someone about Christ is just our, not only our opportunity and a blessing, but it's our responsibility before the Lord. When he changes us, watch this, he makes us ambassadors for Christ. And he commits unto us this ministry of reconciliation. So watch how this works. As we're born and brought into this life as a human being, we bear the image of Christ, right, as a human being. And we have some of the very characteristics, nowhere near all, we're not little Jesuses, or we're not little gods, but we bear the image and the likeness of the God-man, Jesus himself. And so we carry that Imago Dei image, right, when we are born. It comes into clearer being when we are born again because Christ comes to live inside of us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So he begins transforming us and allowing the characteristics of Christ to be fully displayed in our hearts and in our lives and through our lives. And God receives glory for that. But another thing that goes on when he saves us is he gives us not only this image-bearing responsibility as a human being, but now he gives us this verbal responsibility. And that verbal responsibility is to proclaim, there is one who has come whose sandals or shoes I'm not willing to, or I'm not worthy to strap. I'm not worthy to wash this man's feet. I'm not worthy to be his forerunner. But I can tell you what he has done. He has forgiven me of my sins because he died on the cross. And his, his death was acceptable unto the Father because he had lived a perfect life before God. And so when he laid down his life for me, all of my sin, all the sins of all the people of the world who would ever trust Christ, they were placed on Jesus at that crucifixion. And then when he came forth from the grave on that third morning, he conquered my sin, he conquered death, he conquered all of my shame, all of my guilt, and if you believe in him, you can have eternal life. Oh, my brothers and sisters, the power of the gospel is the gospel message itself. It's not necessarily how we present it, where we present it, when we present it. It's the very idea that the gospel has the power to save. So therefore, we should be witnesses about the light. But here's the second thing. If you're ready, say amen. We should adore the beauty of the light. One short verse 
the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming, to, was coming into the world. The light of Jesus is true, not artificial. He is this true light. Is anyone here dealing with things that are artificial in their life right now? Any of you all ever get a robocall? I got a robocall one time, and it was so real. I said, hello. And the person said, well, hello. And I thought, this is a real person. I said, how can I help you? Well, I'm calling to remind you that your Kia is ready for service. And I said, well, I don't service my van down there at Kia, but I appreciate the reminder. And then the person gave themselves away and they said, if you would like to schedule an appointment, press 2. And then at that point I thought, doggone it, I thought I was carrying on a conversation with someone. It was a robocall and they just made that voice, right, sound so good. There was not like this long pause, like when you get that one call from the church, right? And it's Pastor Randy or Brian say, hey, we just want to remind you this is coming up. Listen, listen to me. We are surrounded by things that are artificial. A matter of fact, the phrase or the initials AI, artificial intelligence, it's starting to pop up more and more and more. We're dealing with that on a more and more frequent basis. We have artificial means of communication, not only robocalls, but Siri. If you want to laugh at somebody, has anybody seen Siri, the uh, redneck version, the, e the EK, Siri EK, Eastern Kentucky version? If you want to laugh, go home this afternoon and Google uh, Siri, the Eastern Kentucky version. I promise you will laugh. It's, 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 some of my family is right there in it. We just, some of that, I mean, it's just there, right? The Siri. Someone gave me a Siri a few years ago for my, uh, for Christmas it was. And they were telling me about how to hook it up and stuff. And I said to Tracy, you think I should hook that up, you know? And she said, I don't think you're going to like it, you know. Like if I text message and I try to use the voice thing, it's never good. I don't know. It's the cross between Chicago and Kentucky and and a thick tongue, I guess. I don't know, but it, it never comes out right. And so I'm sure if I asked Siri something, she would misinterpret it and probably get me in trouble. But you have Siri, you have artificial relationships. One of the greatest uh, counseling um, needs that I have, um, that I deal with when I meet with men, is... Um, They've entered into an artificial relationship with a woman online that um, they're never going to have a physical relationship with uh, unless they just really go out of their way to make something happen. Um, and I'm just, I'm telling you, it's unhealthy, right? It's unhealthy. When you uh, talk to biblical counselors, they'll tell you they're dealing with that in an unprecedented way. And it's not just men. Women just um, just going online and just chatting online with someone and then they set up to do something online to where they try to meet some person and it's just so artificial in so many different ways. Artificial pets. 
I think I could deal with an artificial pet on an airplane better than I could deal with a real pet on an airplane. Would somebody say amen? Did y'all see a few weeks ago that they allowed a little Shetland pony to be on an airplane because it was a service animal? I got news for you. If you need a Shetland pony to be your service animal, you probably don't need to be flying anywhere. You just, you just probably don't. I, I think maybe a train would be better where you could get that pony some hay or something. But it's just something all the time. Robots everywhere. Um, the mechanical industry is looking at ways how they can go robotic to save costs and to put out a more consistent product. Artificial intelligence is everywhere. If you agree with that, say amen. Why would I talk about that so long? Because Jesus is this one constant that is never artificial. Jesus is not artificial. Now there may be preachers who proclaim him who may be artificial. There may be life group leaders or Sunday school teachers who proclaim him that may be artificial. There may be someone that is on your street who talks a good game about Jesus, but you know their life just really doesn't line up with Jesus. And you could say they're just, it's just not true, right? Jesus is this true light that all truth comes from. He, this, this word truth here, when it says true light, it's the idea that Jesus is not partially true, but he's entirely true. This is really important for us today because when you come face to face with Jesus of the scriptures, your decision is not to trust him a little bit or not to trust him some of the way. Our responsibility is to trust him all of the way. You can't live one foot in with Jesus and one foot in this world. You can't say, give me a little light on my one side and give me darkness on the other. How does that work when you go to the beach and you lay out on your, on your chair and you've laid on your side and you wake up, you accidentally fall asleep, and one whole side of your face and side is burnt and you roll over and the other one's all white? It doesn't work, right? And let me tell you what does not work. Being just a little bit in on Jesus. The world loves the non-biblical Jesus because they can talk about this Jesus without being committed to the true Jesus and being absolutely committed to him. Listen to what Warren Wearsby said about Jesus being this true light. He said, he is the original of which every other light is a copy. But the Jews were content with the copies. They had, they had Moses and they had the law, they had the temple and they had the sacrifices, but they did not comprehend that these lights Lesser lights pointed to the true light who was the fulfillment, the completion of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is this true light. And my brothers and sisters, we should adore him. If you say, Pastor, I just don't, I, I just feel broken. I don't feel like I could live up to worshiping this true light. That's exactly what makes him so beautiful. You can never live up to worshiping him. You don't have to. Because the life that you fail to live 
the life that I failed to live, Jesus lived it perfectly. So we put our hope and our faith and our trust and our belief and our confession in this true life. And then we say, my life is no longer mine, but it's his. And he knows who I am before he came to me. He knows who I am and he knows how much I need to be sanctified and conformed into his image and his likeness. Yet through all of that, he loves me. My brothers and sisters, you'd have never been saved if you had to clean up your act first. Jesus just simply said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a Savior. We should adore the beauty of this light. He's not partially true, he's entirely true. This light of Jesus exposes the darkness of our sin it says there, in, uh, it says, which gives light to everyone. The true light, which gives light to everyone. What does that mean? That everyone is born again? No. Does it mean that everyone has heard? No. What does it mean? It just simply means that we must, um, he, he brings the works of darkness to light. When Jesus came into the world, he was, light in such a way that the world had never seen before and has never seen since. And men hated him for existing simply because when the light of the Lord Jesus came, he revealed how dirty and vile our lives really are morally. And he did that. He continues to do that today. So if you will allow his light to shine upon you, the first thing you'll discover is that Oftentimes, uh, you, your heart is just not in the right place, and so it exposes that darkness inside of us. So when he says this true light, which gives light to everyone, he's not saying everyone will be saved. He's saying this, that God exposes our moral weakness and failure, and we'll understand, I have a need of someone greater, right? The whole world cries out, for explanation for what we see, what we hear, and what we experience. Scientists do, literature professors do, historians do. Everyone wants to have an answer for what we experience. And I want to say to you, Jesus is that answer. And so when it says that he gives light to everyone, he exposes to us our great longing to understand true beauty. Jesus is altogether lovely. If you have never trusted him fully, I encourage you to do that today because there's no one like him. So this light of Jesus exposes the darkness of sin. And the light of Jesus came once at the incarnation and he's coming again at the culmination of human history when he says this true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He not only came the first time, but he said, I will be back again. I'm coming a second time. Aren't you thankful for that? You say, when is that? What do you mean at the culmination of human history? At God's appointed time, which no man knows, 
right? So when you start hearing people predicting and saying, Jesus is coming back in 2000, right? Jesus is coming back in 2020. Jesus is coming back on this particular day. No one knows when Jesus is coming back. The Father knows the appointed time in which he will send the Son. But you can mark it down just as sure as he came the first time. He is coming a second time. Charles Spurgeon said, Christ is this great central fact, this great central theme in all of the world's history. To him, everything looks forward or backward. All the lines of history converge upon Jesus. All the great purposes of God culminate in him. The greatest and most momentous fact which the history of the world records is this very idea that Jesus came and he was born of a woman and he came as 100% man, 100% God to reveal God to us so that we might be saved from our sins. That is glorious good news. That Jesus came as this king who would surrender it all for us to rescue us and in rescuing us he would do it in a way that would not It'd be the only way that would be completely satisfactory to the Father so that we could be received and reconciled to the Godhead for all eternity. We should adore the beauty of the light. Preacher, you're not scared about Jesus coming back. I'm not. Preacher, don't you want to see that little girl, that little granddaughter be born? I do. I, I really do. But I just believe this that I will have an opportunity and time to know people that are no longer with us, to know people that God is creating but who have yet to be born. I just believe I'll have all eternity to get to know them in the truest sense without a, with, with a life that is unhindered by sin. Jesus is coming back. What's the answer for the ridiculousness that we see unfold before us in Washington, in Frankfurt, in Hollywood, in Nashville, and in our own community, in our own neighborhoods, in our own homes. What is the answer for that? And I would say to you, Jesus is that answer. And when he comes back, all of this stuff that your heart cries out about and says, that is not right, it is not just, God is going to completely reconcile all of that in Christ because he is faithful so we should adore this Jesus are you ready for two more we should pray for those who resist the light when the light came when you share the gospel as a witness to the light you can mark it down there's just going to be some people who resist the light verse 10 and 11 he being Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him so he he's created everything that we see and experience. He was in the world. He created the world, yet the world did not know him. The Bible says that the cosmos, the structured and ordered world in which we live, that's living in darkness, it says that they rejected Jesus. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. The world's customary reaction to the world is one of just indifference. And here's the way Paul puts that. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. For in whose case the God of this world has blinded 
the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What is our response when we look at the dark world and we say it's so chaotic and it's such a mess and why are people so hateful and why are people so murderous and why are people so scandalous and why are people doing what people are doing? Lost people do what lost people do and so our job is not just to to look at them and pass some sort of judgment on them and say, look at what they're like compared to what I'm like. No, our job and responsibility is to pray for those people who are living in darkness. And 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 lets us know how we can pray for them, that the gospel would not be veiled, that their eyes would be uncovered, that they would no longer be blinded by the God of this world, that they would go from being unbelieving to believing that they may see the glory of Christ through the gospel and that they might believe. We should pray for those who have resisted Jesus in the world. If you say, preacher, that's as bad as it gets, isn't it? Verse 11 is worse. It says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was not only resisted by the world, but Jesus was resisted by the Israelites, his own people. They had longed for a Messiah. They had hoped for a Messiah. They had longed to be a free people. And Jesus comes as this Messiah. And the testimony of the gospel writer John was, he came to his own and his own people did not even receive him. I want to say to you, my brothers and sisters, while we are not Israelites, and the church is not a New Testament picture of the Old Testament Israel, I would say to you, you are living in an age and opportunity of grace. You're hearing the gospel. You get to come to a church where your kids can be trained up in the gospel. You get to be encouraged to memorize scripture and to serve the Lord through missions. I would say to you that if you are inside the confines of the church, even though you might not be born again at this particular time. Whatever you do, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart and he's bearing witness to this gospel message, don't stiff arm and resist the Holy Spirit. Don't say, I'll do it another time. Yes, I know I need to do that, but not today. Don't put off till tomorrow what you know you need to do today as an act of obedience or a step of obedience to what the Lord's calling you to do as being um, people who have the wonderful opportunity to hear and see the light, let's not resist the light. And let's pray for people everywhere who are attempting to resist the light of the gospel. They are just uninterested or they are just indifferent to the message. Let's pray that God would so capture their heart that they would surrender their life to Christ. And then lastly, stand to your feet. Listen to verses 12 and 13. So we should pray for those who resist the light. We should adore the beauty of the light. We should witness of this wonderful light. But in verse 12 and 13, we should celebrate, we should rejoice that many will receive the light. For everyone who resists the light, God is at work somewhere saving people through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to how he puts it. 
but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born but of God. Verse 12 says they believed and they received. didn't matter if they were Jews or if they were Gentiles, if they were rich or poor, if they were illiterate or learned. They received Christ as their own personal Savior. To them was given the power or the right to become uh, the sons or children of God. The wonderful promise was this, that who God was speaking to and working with, it didn't matter whether they were Jew or Gentile, that when they received him, he allowed them to be born again. We should rejoice that God is saving people around the world. We should rejoice just a few weeks ago that uh, a couple of young people here today prayed to receive Christ. Is Jesus still real to y'all? They're looking at me smiling like, uh, I used to look at them, they wouldn't smile, but they're both smiling, beaming today, right? Why is that? Because Jesus did something in them when they heard the gospel and they believed, right? Jesus is saving people and all of God's kingdom and his people should rejoice. Why, preacher? Because the Bible says that there is more rejoicing that occurs in heaven when one sinner repents of his sin and comes to faith in Christ than at any other time. What's the most important thing we can do? It's to witness of this light and then rejoice when people come to faith in Christ. They received him. What does that mean? They didn't do it by human descent. It says who were born not of blood. They didn't do it by their own desire or their own will, nor of the will of the flesh. They didn't do it by the will of man, not by some design, not by, by something some man created. It says they were born by the will of God. Now I want to speak a good word to you and then I want us to respond to the Lord. One of the biggest hang-ups I had in coming to faith in Christ as a 19-year-old sophomore in college was this. I'm hearing, I'm understanding, but I'm not for sure God will receive me. And I would like to come, but what happens if I come and I'm rejected? I want you to hear the word of the Lord. It's not by blood, not by the will of flesh, not by the will of man. But if God is speaking to your heart, it's by the will of God that you would turn from your sin and that you would call upon Christ in faith and in believing in him and calling upon him It's the very guarantee you'll be saved because God is speaking and working. Preacher, I was raised that in order to be saved, you had to lay on that altar during revival time. And I think it's a crying shame. We don't even have revival now and nobody can ever be saved because we don't have a a two-week revival where people can come get on the altar. Listen to this. The whole world is the altar of the Lord. 
And the Holy Spirit is not confined by time or space or a pastor. You can be saved when the Spirit of God is speaking to you because it's by the will of God that a person is born again. It's not by our will or our decision or someone coming and taking you by the hand. It is the volitional will of God. If you understand it, say amen. Preacher, you've gone a little preaching crazy today. Listen to me. When we come face to face with a text like today, we should say, God, will you make me a witness? Lord, help me to see you and your beauty in such a way that my heart adores you 24-7. God, help me. Help me to just completely understand not only how wonderful you are, how adorable you are, but God, help me pray for those who resist you. And then God, Lord, make me to rejoice as people come to faith in you. Somewhere right now around the world, someone is praying to receive Christ. Isn't that thought a wonderful thought today? Let's pray that it will be here. God, what an incredible word you have spoken to our hearts. Thank you so much for being faithful and true. There's nothing pretentious or artificial about you or your word. God, I'm thankful that you can make us your witnesses, ambassadors that will share the wonderful love and light of Jesus with people that don't know you. God, we pray for people to this point in their life, they have not received Christ. They've not received or welcomed the light. Their darkness and their sin, their morality has been exposed, but for one reason or another, they've yet to come to faith in Christ. I pray for people like that everywhere, Lord. I have people like that in my own family, Father, that I'm praying for. God, would you save sinners? Lord, I pray you would allow us to celebrate wonderful good news that you still save people. God, will you save people today in this service? Will you forgive us of our sins? Will you work in us fresh and new? Will you help us to carry that message to expose this wonderful light to a lost and dying world? we sing, I want to invite you to come. I'd love to pray with you, hear what's going on, share the word of God with you. You can pray right there in your seat. But as we've seen the Lord high and lifted up, let's respond appropriately today as we sing.